The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, July 11th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump Jr. never met with the Russians. This just a new revelation. Okay, okay. Donald Trump Jr. did meet with a powerful Russian lawyer, but to talk about adoption. Breaking news about the meeting between the Russians and Donald Trump Jr. There might have been a mention of possibly taking it to Hillary Clinton. New development, Donald Trump Jr. offered Russian-backed intel, says I love it. All right, all right, all right. Um, uh, Who among us hasn't met with a foreign adversary with whom we do business And a day later, our dad publicly called upon the same foreign adversary to hack our opponent. Wait, is this explanation actually helping anyone anymore? And that was one of the perplexing questions about what Fredo Trump did. Why would he come out and own this to the extent that he owned it? What help did he think he was doing himself? I have a theory. He knew he was lying. He just didn't know which part of that whole tale was important to lie about. He knew, hey, I'm already covering something up, and he thought that was good enough. Here's how it works. Donald Trump Jr. was selling us all the line, hey, we were talking about adoption. That sounds good to talk about adoption. She wanted to talk about adoption. But adoption is inextricably tied to the Magnitsky Act. The Magnitsky Act, if you're talking about adoption, what you're doing is you're talking about the Russian sanction against the U.S. Now, why did Russia sanction the U.S.? Because the U.S. sanctioned Russians. The U.S. imposed financial penalties on Russians. So this Russian didn't come to the Trump campaign saying, hey, how could we lessen these sanctions against you guys for nothing in return? They obviously wanted Donald Trump, if he was elected president, to loosen the sanctions against them. So Donald Trump Jr. was intent on obfuscating that the point of the talks was about adoption, and he didn't realize that what he was admitting to would soon be proved far worse. Look, look, let's say this in the defense of Donald Trump Jr. He is obviously a very smart guy who graduated from a top college with no help from his family connections and getting in. He oversees a huge business that he built himself, and he's a keen political operative, as proved over the course of many, many campaigns. But I guess even boy geniuses occasionally blunder. On the show today, it's all about context, milieu. We examine that formative event that set this entire affair in motion. Miss Universe 2013, from Russia with Schlock. But first, he's a national security expert, a friend of James Comey. You got to say that now. He's a friend of James Comey. But more importantly, a friend of the gist. Benjamin Wittes on what Donald Jr.'s meeting meant and an analysis of what the White House wants to tell you is the real scandal. I'm Dr. Megan Sachs. And I'm Dr. Amy Sloshberg. And we're the host of the podcast Campus Killings. Our show covers some of the most sinister crimes to take place on or around school campuses. Or the cases we discuss have a school-connected theme. And with the new school year comes an all-new second season of Campus Killings, which will debut on September 16th, 2023. But if you want to listen to Campus Killings now, you can binge all the episodes from season one. Available everywhere you listen to podcasts. 
Joining me now is Benjamin Wittes. He writes the Lawfare blog. He is part of the Rational Security podcast, which you could even listen to in the Foreign Policy podcast feed. There's so many ways to get the Rational Security podcast. And on this show, Ben Wittes talks about ENCH. Remind us what E-N-S-H stands for, Ben. It stands inspired by the gist for errant national security horseshit. So yesterday when you contacted me, there was some uh, national security horseshit that was quite errant. What were you referring to then? Well, I was referring to the fact that the president woke up yesterday morning and tweeted uh, the apparently libelous accusation that the former FBI director, Jim Comey, had leaked classified information. And it was so illegal, which quite apart from the Valley Girls speak of so illegal, actually seems to have no element of truth to it. And it comes from, as far as I could trace the president's sourcing, he saw something on Fox and Fox read something in The Hill and The Hill reported that someone saw some documents that had markings that said classified on them. Is that right? Uh, That seems to be right. I mean, the chain of events is Comey and his uh, legal team turned some memos over to uh, the special prosecutor. The Hill investigators are allowed to review those memos. Some Hill people talk to the Hill newspaper. The Hill newspaper writes a actually kind of silly story, but I don't. As far as I know, there's nothing in it that's sort of wildly incorrect. Uh, that is grossly mischaracterized by Fox and Friends, which is then in turn grossly mischaracterized by the president. Uh, which, uh, you know, when you when you uh, put it all together, you end up with uh, the president of the United States tweeting what is essentially a lie about the FBI director whom he had fired and then lied about it. Right. And uh, the Fox and Friends tweet referenced top secret documents. And even in the Hill report, that wasn't the classification level that was said. But if someone were to take that Hill report as gospel and say, well, these documents had the markings classified on them. What context can you give to that? So first of all, there was never a doubt that there was classified material in memos that Comey wrote. In fact, he testified as much. And that's why the document that he gave to his friend Dan Richman and who then passed on the contents of it, though not the document itself, to the New York Times That document was written specifically to be unclassified, and Comey made that clear in his testimony to distinguish it from some of the other memos that were always understood. They're investigative sensitive material in a a counterintelligence investigation. Of course, they're classified. None of those documents have been leaked or disclosed. And so if the point of the Hill article is that there was some classified material in the Comey memos, the answer to that is, duh. (laughs) Well, the answer to so much of what's going on and out of the White House today is duh. And if what we've just done right there is put a bow on this distraction technique, uh, I should also note that I don't know how many people are being distracted by it because new revelations are out today. Details about Donald Trump Jr.'s meetings with a Russian mm, lawyer who possibly deals with the Kremlins. How bad and damaging do you evaluate these revelations to be? So I I think this sequence of revelations, they're pretty stunning. If collusion between the Russians and the Trump campaign didn't take place, it's not for lack of trying on the part of the Trump campaign, that these, these are a group of people who 
uh, were not morally above colluding with a foreign adversary intelligence service in order to defeat a domestic opponent that in fact had at least one approach from somebody claiming to be and maybe two approaches from people claiming to be representatives of, of a foreign adversary government and there had the opportunity to say, uh, no, we don't do that sort of thing. And by the way, that sounds like something the FBI should know about. And instead, uh, seem to have held out their hands and said, you know, thank you, sir. Can I have some more? The Or thank you, ma'am. Can I have some more? <laughs> I want to ask you about journalism, the investigation, and legalities. So my journalism question is, what do you make of how the Times has been reporting the story, what it seems like the sources for the story are and the fact that there seems to be a new development every 12 or 24 hours. You know, scandals have a way of snowballing. And uh, the Times has done a spectacular job at starting this snowball rolling down the hill. And I don't want to take anything away from them. But I do think the last couple uh, iterations of this uh, 12 to 24-hour pattern seem to me to be more about momentum taking over than anything else. And I and I think these things acquire a logic of their own and more and more people are uh, probably picking up the phone and calling their favorite of the three relevant New York Times, four relevant New York Times reporters. I also think a dynamic here is that because everybody saw in that first story that this was not sourced to investigators. This was sourced to the people involved in the incident and their lawyers. Right. And also and, uh, documents were referenced, documents that correct. the Times reporters had seen. And so once people with information see that other people with information are talking, there's a kind of prisoner's dilemma. You don't be want to be the person who isn't represented in the story because you didn't get your your point of view out. And so I think there's a little bit of a race to pick up the phone and talk now. And so you see in the second story, it's sourced uh, both to uh, several White House sources and also to Don Jr. on the record. And then today, uh, in the most dramatic example of this, uh, he just goes and tweets his own emails uh, in, in an attempt to preempt the New York Times story. Once everybody believes the information is coming out, uh, you actually have a bit of an incentive to, to do it on your own terms. If the Times has this, should we conclude that Robert Mueller certainly has this? Well, they certainly have it now. They have it now. <laughs> um, you know, um, I don't know the answer to that. So Mueller has been, you know, despite what the president keeps saying, you know, that these are political people and they're, you know, the deep state is leaking and stuff. I have seen no evidence of any leaks from Mueller's shop. And the result is that his investigation is something of a black box. I do think it's very likely based on the fact that the investigation has been going on for a while and it probably has requested and received a large amount of documentary material that Mueller is investigating threads that the journalists have no idea of. Members of the administration and their spokespeople have explained that the forms have been amended in response to revelations that members of the administration did in fact meet with Russians who they didn't disclose. This has been said a few times now. 
you know, as a layman, I would say, okay, if you forget one meeting with uh, an ambassador and you're Jeff Sessions and you're a senator and it's in a crowded room, I can understand that. But when it happens time and time again, what am I to conclude? But maybe I'm being too harsh. Maybe as a Washington insider or someone on a campaign, you are constantly meeting with people and it's understandable that you leave some people off the forms. Yeah, I I got nothing for you on this one. I mean, you'd think after the first two or three people went back and said, wait a minute, uh, I forgot about meeting with Sergei Kislyak. I forgot about, you know, the secret meeting in Trump Tower where we talked about establishing a back channel line of communication. You'd think the others would have said, gee, well, actually, I had a meeting with you know, the Russians as well, that maybe I, there was that creepy Russian lawyer who came and wanted to talk to me about adoption. And there is something very strange about a group of people who repeat that there was no, there's no evidence of collusion, nothing to see here, and all of whom have forgotten about meetings with uh, Russian actors. And some of them have forgotten about, you know, significant payments from Russian actors. So I, I think the whole thing is very strange and I don't have an explanation for it. Failure to disclose on these forms is a violation of the law or is that just more of a penny ante bureaucratic uh, snafu? So it sort of depends how willful it is, I mm -hmm. think. You know, you, you do sign those things uh, under penalty of perjury, I think, and it can threaten your security clearance if you don't do it accurately. I think as a general matter, there is a uh, – particularly with respect to FARA disclosures, there is an understanding that if you go back – you know, if you miss something and you go back and correct it, you know, it's not a game of gotcha. And FARA's um, Foreign Agent Registration Act, is that it? Correct. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, like missing major important disclosures, that's not a small thing. And I, I – you know, a lot of people are – doing these head-scratching tweets about why Jared Kushner, after these changes, uh, still has a security clearance. And I, I don't know the answer to that. So I've read a lot about the legal definition of collusion. It seems to me that a fair number of people have determined who are law professors and uh, familiar with the law have determined that collusion has already been met, the legal definitions. But others... Uh, Trey Gowdy, let's say, seemed to say that, no, there is no collusion. You can't prove the collusion. We're so far away from proving collusion. What's your understanding of the definition and where are we down that road? The, the first thing to understand about collusion is that it's not a term of art that has any application in this space at all. Uh, people use it as a legal term and actually I think it's really a legal term only in antitrust law, right, where two companies get together and secretly fix prices, right? They have a secret collusive agreement to, you know, affect the market. That's where you use the term collusion as a legal term of art. When people use the term collusion here, what they mean is something sinister and illegal and covert that happened between the Trump with the Trump people and the Russians. And, you know, what counts as collusion, uh, you know, whether that collusion would even be illegal is actually a really interesting question and highly fact dependent. So you could imagine collusion uh, that would be totally illegal, for example, will release all these hacked emails if you tell us whom to give them to and agree to uh, lift sanctions when we get you elected, right? That would be a kind of quid pro quo, uh, almost like a bribery kind of situation. 
On the other hand, you could also imagine collusion that would be horrible, but it would be kind of a head scratcher. Um, whether it would be illegal. For example, a Russian agent shows up in my office and says to me, uh, Mr. Trump campaign executive, would it be helpful to you if we on our own released all these emails in at, at key moments in the campaign? And I said, why, yes, that would be very helpful. Can you please do it on, on you know, late in the summer? Um, it's a, a, like a little bit of a head scratcher, exactly what law that would be said to violate. And so I think the answer is, is collusion legal? It totally depends what kind of collusion you're talking about. What about obstruction of justice? That is always illegal. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> are the, you know, <laughs> are the conditions met in this case? You know, generally speaking, obstruction is a specific intent set of crimes. That is, you know, if you if I say to you, that's a nice house you got there, it'd be a shame if something happened to it. That's obstruction of justice if I'm, you know, Don Corleone. But if I'm an insurance salesman uh, trying to sell you a homeowner's insurance policy, it's not obstruction of justice, right? Same exact conduct. The difference is purely a matter of your state of mind and specific intent. It's, you know, lawyers will call it mens rea. Here, you cannot really evaluate whether the president engaged in obstruction of justice without interviewing the president about what he did and why he did it. And all that said, uh, if I were a member of Congress thinking not as a prosecutor but in my role as somebody who'd sworn an oath to protect the Constitution, I would certainly want to evaluate whether this was obstructive of justice for purposes of the impeachment clauses and whether it was a sort of an abuse of power. And that actually does not depend in any way on its specific actionability under the criminal law. Right. The Constitution does not include phrases like mens rea. It's just whatever the congressmen feel like acting on that day. Well, and look, it's possible to behave in a fashion that violates your oath of office to preserve and protect the Constitution and that violates your uh, obligation to take care that the laws be faithfully executed and is thus an impeachable offense but is not uh, a technical violation of the obstruction of justice statutes as the courts have interpreted them over the last 30 years. Benjamin Wittes is a senior fellow at Brookings, the editor-in-chief of the Lawfare blog, and you could listen to him on the Rational Security podcast, which I recommend. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Chris here, producer of The Gist. And before we get to the spiel, I just want to let you know something. We caught a mistake in the spiel right after Mike had to leave today, which is the pronunciation of the Agalarov family. Mike keeps calling them the Alagarov family. And the Agalarovs are at the center of this entire controversy that's going on right now with Donald Trump Jr. I just wanted to note that we caught the mistake. We couldn't fix it by the time Mike had left. So I'm sorry about that. Mike will be here to apologize personally on tomorrow's show. Just wanted to let you know, 
before you send us very angry emails about the most important news of the day. All right, here's the spiel. The reason that Donald Trump Jr. took a meeting with a Kremlin-connected lawyer was on the advice of his friend Rob Goldstone. He was friends with Rob Goldstone, a buffoonish bon vivant former tabloid reporter whose social media has him wearing garish and often insensitive headgear. I think he was played by Oliver Platt in like four or five movies. Anyway, the connection to Rob Goldstone came about because Goldstone was representing a fairly talentless singer named Emin Alagarov. And Emin Alagarov got gigs and bookings, thanks, I guess, a little to his talent, but mostly due to the fact that he was a Donald Trump Jr.-esque person, meaning he had a well-connected real estate daddy, wealthy Russian real estate magnate Aris Alagarov. Alagarov paid $20 million to bring the Trump-owned Miss Universe pageant to Russia in 2013, and Trump and Alagarov tried to build a Trump Tower in Moscow. That never happened, but this did. And a special thank you to the president and vice president of Crocus Group and our incredible hosts here in Russia. Thank you so much for being great hosts. That was from the 2013 Miss Universe pageant. Now, if as they say, World War II was won on the playing fields of Eton and the French Revolution was born in the cafes of Paris, then I thought we all as Americans must go to the formative event of our current situation, the 2013 Miss Universe pageant in Russia. Now, I don't watch many beauty pageants, but this one seemed, how would I put it, kind of extremely shitty, like slapdashed, half-assed. Here, in the preliminary rounds, the contestants wear swimsuits and evening gowns and are identified with factoids or something. Sweden. Sweden studied art and design in high school. She hopes to one day have a career where she can use her creativity and work with people. Sweden. Because people are the best to work with. Thailand. Thailand says Sir Richard Branson is her idol because of his creativity. She collects refrigerator magnets and told us she recently took a Thai kickboxing class. Or as they call it in Thailand, just kickboxing. Now, I want to remind you of something. Rob Goldstone, he described that meeting with the Russian lawyer as, quote, the most inane nonsense I've ever heard. And Rob Goldstone heard this. Czech Republic was the first Miss Universe representative in her country's history to have short hair. Wow, I feel a connection already. I also like how they're not Miss Czech Republic or Miss Thailand, just Czech Republic. Curacao, here's Curacao. Some of the biographical details seem designed to get viewers to loathe these bikini-clad beauties. Kana told us she's able to eat whatever she wants without gaining much weight. In fact, this 19-year-old has only been to the gym twice in her entire life. By the way, who was this guy hosting this portion of the pageant? Well, you might know him as... Sports writer and pageant enthusiast, Nick Teplitz. Or you might not know him at all, which is credit Nick Teplitz owned. Uh, my name is Nick Teplitz, and if you haven't heard of me, don't worry. It's not because we're in Russia and you're Russian. Nobody in the States has heard of me either, I assure you. Nick Teplitz is, I submit, the most submissive person currently outside a gimp mask. Now listen, as much as I would love to host solo tonight, I'm just one man. And some would argue that I'm not even that. 
Whoa, boy. Cuck, cuck, cuck. Trump is not going to like that. But Nick Teplitz wasn't the only participant in this affair who was clearly doomed in a Trump-run contest. Mauritius feels it's important to offset greenhouse gases emitted by human activity. Did not advance. Tanzania enjoys writing and would like to have a career in journalism. She did not advance. Germany founded a nonprofit organization to help foreign children learn to speak German. Yeah, she's not going anywhere. And I have to say, if the Trump family just listened closely to what these contestants stood for, they might not be in the position they're in today. Botswana told us she wishes that people still wrote each other letters. She feels emails aren't as personal and says nothing beats beautifully written words, especially on homemade paper. Botswana. Miss Spain, sorry, Spain, just Spain. Spain was edged out by Venezuela in the end. The crown was placed on her head, but then was promptly knocked off thanks to the misapplication of a new sash. Symbolism. Sure, why not? This was certainly a seminal moment, and what we could not know then was the soon-to-be-installed cacistocracy, which means government by the least qualified, most stupid members. Let's end on a skit that accompanied the pageant. Here is Donald Trump, Sr., laying into Emin Alagarev, the barely talented scion of a real estate emperor. Emin, wake up. Come on. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you, Emin? Emin, let's get with it. You're always late. You're just another pretty face. I'm really tired of you. You're fired. In unrelated news, Donald Trump Sr. referred to Donald Trump Jr. today as, quote, a high-quality person. And that's it for today's show. Chris Berube enjoys producing the gist and obeying walk and don't walk signs. Berube. Mary Wilson is a gist producer and an active member of the listening to music community. Wilson. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, says one day he dreams of being assistant executive producer of Slate Podcasts. We know you'll get there, Lichtai. Lichtai. The gist. The gist studied cutlery in school and learned that prongs can also be called tines. The gist. Oomperu depperu duperu, and thanks for listening.